Welcome once again to the Talking Skiing Podcast. I'm Lenny Joseph, and in this episode, episode six, we catch up with Jimmy Pedersen. Jimmy has traveled all over the world writing about skiing and photographing his experiences. Jimmy has skied on all seven continents and at more than 500 ski resorts in more than 70 countries. He's taken all those stories and photos and compiled them into two incredible books, Skiing Around the World and Skiing Around the World Volume 2, which you can find at his website, skiingaroundtheworldbook.com. During this episode, we talk about Jimmy's early life, moving to Europe to ski, how he got into the ski journalism business, some of his more exotic travels, including skiing in North Korea, and we even chat about skiing down some sand dunes. Let's get into it with Jimmy Pedersen, who's joining us from Austria. How are you doing today, Jimmy? I'm doing fine. I was skiing today, and uh, that always makes me feel good. Sure, and uh, we've got a little time change, so it's actually the evening uh, where you are and uh, the morning where I am. And so, yeah, you're, you're kind of winding down the day as mine is uh, getting started here today, huh? Yeah, I've got my after-ski drink right here. and But, you know, the there's no after-ski allowed in Austria at this point. So, you know, after-ski is by myself. I was going to ask you that. With COVID, how are uh, things there in Austria? And, and uh, specifically, I mean, you're able to get out and ski, but I would imagine things are a little bit different uh, this year than, than in years past, right? Yes, that's true. And I, it's hard for me to really give you a complete overview because I'm, I've just skied in a couple places that are close to my home. But basically, the skiing right now is only for people who are locals because hotels are closed, restaurants are closed. So, you know, nobody that's not living somewhere nearby uh, can go skiing, but the lifts are open and uh, most of the ski areas all over Austria are open. There's a few large ones that have remained closed, presumably to save money because they feel, they feel they'll lose money under the circumstances, although they give some lame excuses uh, because it's, you know, it's pretty shitty of them to be honest, that they stay closed, because this is a one-time, not a good opportunity, but let's say local people who usually, if they're in the ski industry, they're too busy to do much skiing themselves. And this year, with their hotels closed and their restaurants closed, they could all go out skiing and you know get away from the sort of depressing aspects of COVID. So it's, it's a bit of a shitty deal that some of these resorts have stayed closed, but almost all have, have opened. Yeah. And uh, where are you exactly uh, in Austria? So I'm literally in the center of Austria. I, I live in a village called Altausee, which is more well known for its uh, summer resorts. It's a region called the Salzkammergut. And that means, you know, the sort of salt treasure area, because this place was put on the map by the salt mines back in the old days. There's still a couple active salt mines, one which people might know of because there was a there was a movie not too long ago, a few years ago, which told about the Nazis that stole all the art from all around Europe and hid it, among other places, in the Althausay salt mine. And your house, uh, you were telling me right before we started the podcast, is, has been in the family since the late 1800s. Is that right? Yeah, since 1883. Wow. My great-grandfather, who was from Vienna, he bought the house as a kind of summer house. And uh, we lost the house during World War II because, you know, the family was Jewish and had to uh, escape from Hitler and the Nazis. And the house was more or less, 
I don't know if you want to call it confiscated or sold under duress, <laughs> but the, the way the, those things worked actually was that they assessed what your, there was a tax you had to pay to leave, you know, to get a, a visa out of the country. And the tax usually was pretty much whatever your net assets were. Oh, wow. So pretty much everything you had. Yeah. Yeah. So you had to sell your house and your, you know, the jacket off your back and your car and whatever you had to, to get the, the visas out. So that was the, uh, yeah, that was a very neat and clean way. <laughs> sure. Uh, but but uh, the family was able to get it back years later and uh, it stayed in the family ever since. And, and you're actually living uh, there. Is that that's your full time residence at the moment? Uh, it's my main residence, but I also I I also have a house in Sweden in Gothenburg. Okay. You know, I grew up in Los Angeles in California. My mother was the first female ski instructor in California in 1948-49, just before I was born. So, you know, the skiing has been in the family. My great uncle, her uncle, was a very prodigious mountain climber. He's considered the father of free climbing. His name is Paul Preuss. He did a lot of first ascents, and, and, uh, but he also, you know, fell to his death at the age of 27. So, you know, he, he, he paid the price of... Uh, of yeah, of free climbing you know. back, yeah. Uh, there's, there's, uh, you either live to a, an old age or, or not in that, in that sport there, uh, for sure. Uh, so you, as you were saying, you grew up in, in the California area, uh, there and, and, uh, with your, your mom being a skier, uh, you were kind of born right into it. And, and did you start skiing pretty much right away? Yeah, I started when I was two. My father was Norwegian. So, you know, they both had skiing in their background and, and, uh, so I was very, very lucky to put on skis and introduce to it and um, from two people who really were passionate about skiing. So they were able to uh, pass that passion on to me. Yeah. And so you started out in the mountains around, you know, outside of Southern California there, I guess as well, right? Sort of out of the, the Los Angeles area. Yeah. Yeah. Correct. In the region of San Gabriel mountains and San Bernardino mountains there at that time, there were probably about 10 resorts, you know, some of them are defunct now but Mount Baldy, Snow Summit, Snow Valley, Kratka Ridge, I don't think exists anymore, uh, Blue Ridge and Mount Baldy. Mount Baldy was gobbled up by, by Blue Ridge and then now it's called Mountain High, the two places together, Mount Waterman, uh, et cetera. But uh, you know, that's where we skied, I wouldn't say every weekend, but you know, very often, at least for one day on a weekend during the winter. Sure. And, uh, and then, you know, growing up in Southern California, you, you get the, the beach culture obviously is there and uh, the mountains are, are not that far away overall. But, uh, you know, when did you decide, hey, I'm going to go skiing and uh, experience some bigger mountains outside of, of uh, California and, and decide uh, I'm going to take some trips here and, and kind of started that lifestyle? Um, when I finished university, I studied at USC and I got a, a bachelor's in history. And then uh, later I went back and got a master's. But after getting the bachelor's, I thought, well, you know, I'd been studying straight through high school and, and, and college. I'm going to take a, a winter off. And, and I had skied a bit in Europe because I did a, an exchange semester in Germany where I mostly ditched school and skied. So I went, I, I, well, anyway, I went back right, you know, 1973, which is a long time ago. And I ended up getting a job instructing in Hinterglem. 
I had not heard of Hinterglem. And I thought at the time that I was a very knowledgeable American about skiing. You know, I'd heard of Davos and Chamonix and Sermat and, and uh, Kitzbühel and a couple other places. Little did I know that that was, you know, just the tip of the iceberg. And there were places like Hinterglem, which I figured would, even when I got the job there or got offered the job, I thought, well, you know, it's probably a little hill with two baby lifts and a T-bar, but, you know, it's a job and, and I'll try it out. Well, lo and behold, you know, it was probably bigger than any resort in the United States, but I hadn't heard of it. And did that start some of the, the travels for you? You know, eventually, obviously writing these two gigantic books, uh, Skiing the World, uh, Volume 1 and Volume 2. Uh, was that kind of the start of it? Did that sort of start the, the, the craving for, for going and checking out all these different places? Um, it only started it to the extent that I, I loved the skiing in, in, in Hinterglem and Salva, you know, and after the season with a couple of other ski instructors, we took a few weeks and you know, we went on to ski in France and, and you know, a few different other good resorts. So that gave me more of, of a taste. But it struck me, first of all, these, these resorts were much bigger than the U.S. resorts. And they were, so me being a powder skier, there was just much more terrain. And the, the tree line, as you probably know in the Alps, is quite a bit lower than in, in North America. So you had a lot of open terrain above the tree line, you know, which meant basically you could just, you know, go skiing off piste anywhere. Uh, so that was was great, was really up my alley as I had learned a lot of my skiing, not at the very beginning as a small kid, as I said, in Southern California, but my parents always took us to Alta, which, as you probably know, is sort of the powder paradise in, in North America. So I was a powder skier. And then, you know, to go a little step further, maybe four or five years into my, you know, I kept going back, you know, for another year of instructing and, and a, a third year. And then in the meantime, somebody offered me a job as a singer entertainer. You know, I've, I'd been sitting with a couple of ski instructors playing the guitar and singing. And one of the travel reps said, Hey, you know, can't you, you know, entertain for, you know, one evening for my guests. And, you know, then the light bulb kind of lit up that I could make more money singing and I would have my days free for skiing. That went on for a few years. But during maybe the fourth or fifth season, a fellow who was a pretty well-known Swedish photographer, I met him and, and, you know, he took me and a few other instructors and used us as his models. And then he sold the pictures to travel agencies and, and, and whatever. So then again, that set off another little light bulb, but it took a long time for that to really reach fruition. But that was the first place where I got the idea, okay, you know, you can make money with photography. So eventually I ended up on the, on the other end of the camera. Yeah. And, uh, it's still going strong and, and it figured out over the years, uh, you know, how to keep it going. And, uh, and part of that was, was getting into, as you mentioned, into ski photography and then also into uh, ski journalism. And, and is that really when you were able to, to take these trips and, and, uh, and get some money, you know, in return for, for some of these trips that you were able to take all over the world to go ski? Well, the way it really got started is, is a funny story. It was 1985. And I decided I wanted to ski for the first time in the Southern Hemisphere. So I planned a trip to, you know, to South America to ski in, in Chile and Argentina. 
And I went, I was at a wedding in Finland and one of the guests at the wedding was the editor of the Finnish ski magazine. So being a ski bum and used to a lot of conniving and trickery, I asked him if he would do me a favor and, and would write me a, a letter of introduction claiming me to be a ski journalist, you know, on, on his, you know, letterhead of the ski magazine. And I was going to use that to con these ski resorts into giving me some free lift passes. Well, lo and behold, when I got to both Chile and Argentina, the people were, were very kind and, and, you know, they believed the letter and, and they not only gave me free lift passes, but they caught me a free room very often and free meals. So I got what a ski bum probably should never get, and that was a guilty conscience. Um, but that turned out to be good because, you know, I got a guilty conscience and I thought, well, I really have to try to give them some return on, on their kindness. And I wrote some articles and I, I took some photos. And the photos was also a bit of a, of a weird thing because I had been given a hand-me-down camera before my trip that nobody wanted. Somebody had, some guest in Salbach had lost it and uh, none of the reps wanted it. They said, do you want this? And it was a Russian camera called a Zorky 10. So we're not talking about me having an Olympus or a you know, Canon or a Nikon, a Zorky 10. It did not have any interchangeable lenses, just had a fixed 55 millimeter lens. And that's what I had. But, you know, I, I loaded some slide film in and I took some photos. And when I returned to Europe, I sold the articles in Finland, in Denmark, in Norway, and in Sweden, and I was a ski photographer and ski journalist. Wow. And then just went from there, and, and uh, now you had some published uh, works, and, and yeah, legitimate ski photographer and journalist all of a sudden. Yeah, no, that's, that's true. And, and it's, as you very correctly point out, you know, then you have something to show, and, and so that legitimizes you to some degree. Now, I realized, and this gets back to your original question, I realized that you know, my, the quality of my work was not really that great. So what was the reason why I managed to get this stuff published? And my estimate of the answer was, it was because I was doing this stuff in South America where really not too many, they were not getting other articles from there. It was too far off the beaten path. So I thought, well, if I, if I continue to go to exotic places, maybe I could continue to sell my articles. So the next year I went to India, or maybe it was two years later, and that was fantastic. I was skiing with uh, Sylvain Sudan, who was, is still you know, considered sort of the father of ski extreme. Um, he had started a heli-ski operation in Kashmir in northern India, and I managed to, you know, get a freebie showing him the stuff I had done. And he was very nice. And, and, and that was very exotic, you know, not only Sylvain Sudan, but skiing in the Himalayas. So that got published in probably three or four or five different magazines. And, you know, in the meantime, of course, I was getting better. <laughs> Yeah. Was it sort of each year you'd pick a, or each, you know, couple times a year, pick someplace exotic, do some research, uh, figure out how to get there, how to uh, meet up with the right people and then take some pictures and, and, and write some articles about it? Well, you know, on those early trips, both in South America 
and you know there in Kashmir, I was I was on my own, so I you know I had to rely on you know taking photos of the guide or you know some other uh, guests or people that I met. You know, as time went on, um, I would start you know doing trips with friends of mine. I didn't really want to you know if you if you fast forward to the current day or and you know even the last ten years or more. A lot of what you see on ski films and you know in ski magazines are uh, journalists that travel with sponsored models, and these guys, you know, they can do a flip off a 20-meter cliff and you know whatever. But my mo was really, I felt that that kind of stuff was, you know, that a normal skier, even a good skier, could not identify with that. It's just too few people that can do that. A good skier, of course, he can identify with a nice face shot of powder, you know, or a jump off of you know, a nice little cornice or, or something, but um, certainly not something that that radical. So I tried to ski with with people that are friends that were good skiers, and they would be my my models. And of course, that was much more fun for me. Um, as you can imagine, there's not really, it's a lifestyle more than, you know, some big money-making thing. So even, you know, I was maybe, I've sold articles probably in 20 different countries and, and certainly in a, in a normal winter in the old days, you know, I would, I would sell 20 or 25 or 30 articles. So it was pretty, uh, I was pretty successful but you didn't make any, once you paid your costs, you weren't making any money. So you might as well have fun and ski with your friends. Sure. Of course. And, uh, you know, the travels over the years took you to basically skiing on every continent, right? You've skied on all seven continents, uh, over the years. That's true. I've skied in 75 countries, which I think is more than anybody ever has done. And I'm very, you know, I, I don't want to say I'm, of course, I'm proud of it in a way, but, you know, I'm just happy for having had those experiences. And it's not just for the skiing, because, you know, if you really want the best skiing in the world, you probably don't have to go any further than, you know, some good resort in the Alps or the Rockies, arguably also in the Andes or a few other uh, ranges. But to go to these exotic places and interesting cultures where at least half if not more of the whole story and the experience is the people you meet some of the sites you see learning about the culture the food etc et so it's a real i consider that my books are are travel books as they are ski books sure and i was just going to say uh you know looking at the the books and the pictures that really comes across. I mean, they're not just here's the map of the resort and here's how, you know, some runs that take you down. And they're really each resort kind of comes with a story and then some pictures that that sort of explain the whole area and the skiing and, and everything kind of that goes along with being in these places. Well, I try to write the, you know, the same as the articles. I try to write the books, uh, each chapter as an experiential style. And so, you know, there have been a lot of uh, like ski atlases over the years in various languages. And those are much more, you know, they're fine. They're informational. They'll tell you, 
how many pieces there are and, and how many kilometers of, uh, of, of slope and, and what's the best restaurant and so on. But they're, they're pretty dry and boring. And my stories are, I try to find an interesting angle. The angle might be something that actually happened to us. Maybe we got caught in an avalanche or, or God knows you know what, but it could be that we had a, a, a mountain guide who was a very interesting character and he becomes a, a feature of the story. But the main point is the story should be interesting, but the person who reads it should also be able to get an idea would I like going to this place? You know, would this be something that would suit me, both from a level of skier and, and from what my interests are and, and so on? And some of the, you know, some of the chap, you know, when you've skied in 75 countries, that includes countries like Estonia or uh, Lithuania, where the longest slope in the country is, a, is about 300 vertical feet. <laughs> so you're definitely not going for the skiing. But it, at the same time, one always can meet nice and fun kind of people in a ski area. So you're going on your own and you're going to Lithuania for the first time. Well, why not get on the skis and, and, and spend a day and you might meet some nice people and have a few beers and uh, next, uh, next night you'll be staying with them. Who knows? Sure. You know, that's something that everybody you have in common with people, no matter if you're skiing in India or Lithuania or South America or, you know, Antarctica, wherever you are. I mean, you're doing the same thing. You can share that common bond between people, even if you don't speak their language or really know all that much about uh, their day-to-day -day life or their culture. Uh, you know, it's something that can bring you together. And, and, and if nothing else, you can ask them about their skis or, or something on the chairlift to get the conversation started, I would think. Yeah, that's definitely true. I mean, obviously, we if we look at our own whole uh, list of, of close friends, there's usually some common bond, whether it's skiing or some other sport, or you know, maybe you like to play chess or whatever it might be, that is the, uh, the thread that brought you together. And I mean, it's also been very helpful that I play guitar and sing, because as you mentioned, even if you don't speak the language, you know, music is kind of an international language. And that has helped bring me together and, and make friends everywhere. Sure. And I actually saw a picture in one of the books there that uh, has a camel, you know, and all the gear loaded on top. And I saw the guitar was also loaded with all that gear. So is that something, if possible, that you try to bring a guitar with you on a lot of these trips? Always, always bring the guitar with. I mean, that, that camel, that was a nice, we did a fantastic trip in, uh, in Morocco which is also, you know, that's in, in volume one. In Morocco, for people that might not know, actually does have a couple bona fide ski resorts. So we visited one of the, uh, of the ski resorts called Ukmaiden, which has a, you know, a pretty reasonable, probably about, I'm guessing, but 2,000 vertical feet. So that's, uh, that's nothing to, you know, to scoff at. Yeah, that's some legitimate skiing. Yeah. And that was very good. We had nice corn snow. And then we did, a, um, we did some ski touring whereby the highest mountain in Morocco is about 4,200 meters. So that's you know, maybe around 13,000 feet, pretty high. And the whole range there of the Atlas Mountains are somewhere in that, in that neighborhood. So we started out on donkeys 
And then we had the skis and the guitar, you know, loaded on a donkey. And we were riding donkeys until we got to the snow line. And then we put on the skins and then we skinned up for a while. And, uh, and we stayed overnight in a, in a refugio. And then the next day, you know, we did a tour. You know, it's just a short thing. You know, we did a one, I don't know, we, we hiked up maybe seven, 800 vertical meters and then skied down. And, and then after that was done, then we went into the desert, into the Sahara Desert. Um, and then we packed the stuff on camels and we rode, when we rode camels like three hours to the highest sand dune in the area and we skied the sand dunes a few times and, and wow. Yeah. Can you make turns on a, on a sand dune? Like, is it kind of like a groomed run or like a slow icy groomed run or how does that work? It's a good question. It's obviously, as you say, it goes slower than snow because you've got more friction. Secondly, you try to find a steep sand dune so you can get up some speed. But once you get going, you have to start going straight for a while, you know, so you get up some speed, but then you can make turns. You know, obviously you can't get an edge in on a, <laughs> on a sand dune. So you're, you're probably a bit better off with a snowboard uh, because, you know, there'd be, you, you know, you have, you're not gonna sink in as much, but it, it worked fine. You know, it was, it's fun. You know, once you get the hang of it, you just, the style is a little bit different because since you're not edging, you don't have as much angulation. You have to be more, you know, straight over your skis, but you can turn them. Um, and almost more of a yeah. bucket list sort of thing, huh? And, and because it was there and you guys were, were in the area, it's like, let's go give it a shot. And in uh, a way you went, huh? Well, it's, it is, a, it, the first time you do it, it's definitely a bucket list thing, but it is kind of fun because I've actually done it at the, at the Sand Dunes National Park in Colorado as well. And I've done it in Peru. There's a fantastic sand dune area uh, there where they actually rent, you know, skis and snowboards at, at some places. So it's a bucket list, but it's fun if you're in a place where, you, where they have the opportunity because the nature is so beautiful too. I mean, just imagine being out in, in an endless as far as the eye can see, sand dunes, similar to as beautiful as it is being on an alp top and you see mountains as far as the eye can see, it's also a very unique experience. And talking a little bit about the books here, Skiing Around the World, uh, you've got two volumes that are out now. And these are, these are like a coffee table book. I was looking at the weights you actually have listed on these books because they're, these are substantial books. I think one weighs in at something like five and change pounds. And the other one's around seven something, I think, as far as just straight poundage of the books. So these are big books with thousands of photos and, and all the words that you put into them and the stories that you tell. Uh, how did you get going with, with even coming up with that first book. I mean, that had to take a long time to kind of compile it, go to all these places, write all of these, uh, you know, descriptions of the, the travels that you've uh, went on. How did that come about, the, especially the first book there? Well, the first book, you know, by that time, I had been, you know, writing articles for probably 14, 15 years. And it so happened, I, there was a new magazine that had just, a ski magazine that had come out in Sweden. And it was based in my home city of Gothenburg. So, you know, I, I went over there, you know, normally I would just call up, but, you know, this is, you know, right next door. So I, I drove over and, and met the editor and had a little chat, you know, showed him some, some material. And he said, well, by the way, the, the owner of the magazine is, is here. Well, you know, why don't I call him in? I think he's, he knows who you are. You've got a good reputation here in Sweden and he'd like to meet you. So he came in and, and he was a real 
ski enthusiast. You know, that's why he had started this magazine. So we got to talking and, and I had had that in my mind for a while that, you know, I, gee, I have enough material for a book. So I ran it by him and he, and he liked the idea. So, I mean, it just, boom, there it was. But it took, so from when we had the, the meeting and he said, okay, we'll go with it. And we hammered out an arrangement, you know, how the money would be shared. It was basically a joint venture, which was probably good for me rather than, you know, most of the time, if you actually have a, a, a book company, you end up with very little part of the pot. Of course, you don't take any risk, but, but so we hammered out a deal and, and then I started making a plan. Of course, I could use some material that I had gathered in the last couple of years, but now I had to really fill out plan and and it it took a little longer we planned on three years basically three winters which would be really jam-packed with with travels but it took an extra year because the last year i was supposed to go to australia and new zealand which was i felt critical for the for the book to have that and um there was like no snow that winter and so we canceled and and just said okay we'll, we'll wait another year so it came out in 2005 but so that was just lucky basically because you know you can you can end up having a good idea and knocking on doors for your whole fucking life and uh nobody says yes please so yeah again kind of uh putting yourself out there being in the right place at the right time talking to the right people uh push things along to the point where you're actually able to get the book published and out there and i think before we went on you know started the podcast you were saying that that book you know after just a couple of years pretty much sold out right yeah it did we, we printed ten thousand copies it, it took three years it was pretty much what we had estimated that uh, we hoped we could you know sell them in, in three years and and that worked and then that was so it was sold out in 2008 and at the time i thought well geez you know i'll print some more yeah and um, i thought maybe i'll add a little bit of bonus material you know i'd, I'd done obviously a few new things and, and just to make it a little different than the first edition but then came that you know sort of they call it a recession but i guess i would call it a depression in 2008 and i thought well that's this is probably not good timing i'll wait a little bit to do to bring out this, you know, second printing. But that, you know, the 2008 recession did not recover that quickly. By the time world economy was back in, in full swing, I had so much new material that I thought, well, maybe I'll make a, a volume two. But that again, <laughs> took a lot longer than I expected, partly because I wanted it to be as complete as possible because there was definitely not going to be a volume three, right? And to be as complete as possible, the more exotic and the more remote the uh, the countries were where I wanted to, which I wanted to include, the more difficult it was to organize. You know, I end up with in volume two. I have you know visits to ski in Antarctica, in North Korea, in Tajikistan. Uh, in Mongolia, in Venezuela, in Uganda. So these are pretty off the wall kind of places. And you, you just, yeah, it takes time. It, yeah, I mean, these are these the places you just mentioned there are not, uh, let alone uh, skiing, they're hard to get into 
uh, for, you know, especially for Americans, just even to go visit. Uh, so, so you, there must've been a lot of logistics involved uh, for some of these places. First of all, just to get in uh, and to get far enough along into the country to actually even go ski, right? Well, you'd be surprised actually, because, you know, that would be, you know, that's a very normal perception. And, and like when I told people I'm going to North Korea, say, how do you get in and what, you know, come on, what's happening? But actually, it's easier to visit North Korea than it is to visit the United States. Oh, wow. Okay. And is that, do you, were you able to use, um, you know, do you have, a, you have a citizenship in, in another country? Were you able to use that or were you just able to set it up and, and go? No, Amer- American citizens. North Korea, the situation there is, well, I presume it's still that way, but, you know, it's, it's like three years ago, four years ago when I was there. But when I was there, it was pretty much the way China was in, in the late 70s, when they had just opened up to Western tourism, and you had to go with, a, uh, with the official North Korean travel agency. So you would have perhaps a, a local, you might have a local travel agent in, in the US or in you know, Britain or you know, wherever, but they, they would have to, they would be your, your go-to person locally, but then they would organize it with the North Korean travel agency. And, and that's the way it was in China. I visited China in 79 and, and also did that. And it, as I say, it was a piece of cake. I mean, you know, you, you went online, you had to fill out something with your, your name, your address, and your passport number. And uh, then they, you know, you get a visa. And, uh, and, and did they review what you were, what you were the, the photos you were taking or what you were writing about at the end of the day? Or were they okay with sort of however you, you know, whatever you captured? Also a good question. Um, so we were actually going to do a film we were going to do a, a documentary on, on skiing in North Korea, which, of course, was much more than just on skiing. It was on North Korea. And we thought, that, you know, there would be a lot of problems with that. And, and we, to begin with, we asked, so what equipment, we, you know, obviously we don't want to have equipment confiscated at the border and whatever, you know. So they said, well, you know, show us what you want to bring. So it's okay. We're bringing the, these microphones. We're bringing this camera and, and so on and everything else. That's fine. That's fine. That's fine. No problem. So that was okay. But you're you're taken around by guides who are a little bit like guards, so they don't let you out of their sight. And you you're staying in a hotel where where they're basically. I mean, all all the personnel are North Korean, but there's not North Korean guests there. So you're really secluded from fraternizing with with local people, and you're not allowed to just you know, when your tour is over, go wander around in town without the guides. You, you're in the hotel, you're escorted to the bus, you're taken to this museum and this school and this uh, library and, and this monument as they want you to see. And then you're taken back, you know, you have a lunch somewhere and then you're taken back. But, you know, and then sometimes they would say, you're not allowed to film this, not allowed to film this. But in the end, I actually was surprised in a positive way about a few incidents that I didn't expect. We went to a school and it was an adult class, probably, I don't know, 150 people learning English. So to begin with, that was nice that in North Korea, they're actually learning English. And I asked our guide, expecting to get a no for an answer, you know, could I go up and and speak to the class? And she said, I don't know, I'll ask the teacher. 
And the teacher said, fine. So I went up in front of the class and said, you know, hi, my name is blah, blah, you know, my name is Jimmy Peterson and I come from the United States. And then I covered my eyes and they all laughed, you know, and I sort of apologized that uh, my country and your country politically are enemies. And I think it's a shame because people are people. And anyway, it was a nice exchange. And um, another time we were at the, we were on a guided tour at the border with South Korea. And our guide, who of course spoke English, we actually had three guides, you know, turned it over to a local military man who then was guiding us and speaking Korean and she would translate. And again, when the tour was over, I asked, you, would it be okay if, uh, if we film and I speak with, with our guide and, you know, you translate? And she asked him and, and he said that was fine. And it was a very touching moment. You know, I again told him a few of, of my thoughts, uh, you know, that it's, I'm sorry that your country is divided. I know it's, it's the great wish of, of you as well as almost every North Korean that your country could be reunited. And I also know that the United States in many ways stands in the way of that happening, but I hope that it, you know, that it can come to pass, you know, and, and, and he was almost moved to tears. So, we, and we filmed that and that was part of the documentary. So that, you know, again, I think it's very important to realize that politics is politics. It's, it's, kind of messed up in most in many countries and naturally when countries politically have an agenda that this is supposed to be an enemy but people are people and if if we go and interact in countries where our nation is a supposed enemy and we can break down some of those fears and some of those misconceptions that people have by just being a good representative of our country, then that can lead to a better world. Yeah, I think uh, very well uh, put uh, for sure. And 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 did that documentary ever come out? I mean, is that available? Can can people can people see that? Well, what happened with that is I was sponsored by a company to make a series of documentaries, but then we we ended up doing five of them, and. Then the company hired a new marketing director and she scrapped the whole plan. And so they had invested, you know, probably about, you know, 60,000 bucks in, in sending me around to places, which was fine and nice. And we have these finished films, but as they scrapped it, you know, I haven't really done anything with it after that. I have them on, you know, I can send you, you a link. I have it on a, on a closed youtube you know sort of a private youtube site sure but they're not out there for for general public to to see at this point i mean i i had it shown last year they have a they had a salzburg ski film festival here in austria mm -hmm. and so i i sent it to them and they really liked it and said yes we want to show it in the film festival they did a a german translation or or uh you know sort of subtitles in german for it so, yeah, that was that was nice that it you know some people got to see it. It did see the light of day, uh, so to speak. Uh, yeah. But you know, it's really hard. The problem really is, you know, I've been involved with so many projects. I mean, the book, you know, these books are a mammoth project, and and 
I don't, you know, I'm a kind of a one man show. I don't have time to try to do something with these, with these films and, and with all the other stuff. I have a small travel company. I organize corporate events in the Alps, uh, you know, sort of incentive trips or, or conference trips. I'm busy with that. I have a band with my son and I'm organizing gigs for us, you know, maybe like a, a month tour every summer. And then I'm ski guiding and I'm, you know, I'm all over the place. So I need about 20 people to work for me, but I don't have the money to pay them. So. <laughs> yeah. I know you need a whole team just to, just to, to push all of the, the material over the years that, uh, that you've compiled uh, out there uh, for everybody, but it seems to be working for you as a, as a one man show, so to speak with the, the two books that are out and, and you can uh, find them on skiingaroundtheworldbook.com. And uh, is there any place uh, that, you've, that you've been or a few places that you've been that, uh, that you're hoping to get back to uh, you know, uh, over the next couple of years or so? Yes, absolutely. The interesting thing is that because of my, the nature of my work with ski journalism, both for the books and for the articles, I very often did not go back to places, even if I loved them, because, you know, well, I need new material. Going back to a place is fun, but it's not going to produce anything that I, that I don't have, and I have to pay for the trip and, and so on. But there are a few places. That, the, the one place that I mentioned that I first went heliskiing with was Sylvain Sudan in Kashmir. So there's a little ski resort there as well called Gulmar. And that was sort of a little bit of the, the base for his skiing. But I mean, he would, you know, go, go off with the helicopter. But I've been back to Gulmar a, a few times. And, and that's, a, that's a fascinating place. And the whole culture in Kashmir, where you often stay on houseboats in the capital city of Srinagar, beautiful old wood carved houseboats. So that's, that's a very unique atmosphere. And I really like that. I'd love to go back to Iran. Iran again another place like north korea that has a bad reputation in 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 uh, quotes but the the nicest most hospitable people in the world um so i mean i was overwhelmed with hospitality and at first i really thought well should i even say i'm american or should i say i'm swedish or you know whatever but the first time somebody asked which is you know usually right away you know, I said American and they, oh, oh, very nice. You know, I have relatives in America and, and they understand that it's political bullshit, you know. So I'd love to go back there. It's, the skiing is beautiful. You know, as a powder skier, our good powder resorts all over the Rockies and the Alps are more and more full of good powder skiers. You know, it gets tracked out sooner and sooner. You know, the wide skis make it easy and the snowboards are, make it easy for almost anybody to do that kind of skiing. Whereas when I was young, you know, you really have to develop that skill it was not so easy. But in Iran, you don't have too much competition for the powder and it's good dry, dry powder. So that's, that's a place I would, I would like to go back. Chile, Chile is spectacular. You know, a lot of the skiing is on volcanoes and I find volcanoes to be extremely majestic the way they you know, stand in this perfect pyramid shape and often rise head and shoulders above any of the surrounding terrain. And there are many small volcano areas there. 
you know, they might only have two lifts or three lifts and not much vertical, but you can easily, you know, hike up above the lift and, and you know, do some ski touring. And that's just a sampling, but, you know, there's more places. Oh, sure. I don't want to keep you here too long today, uh, Jimmy, but if, you know, people wanted to find out more about your books, if they wanted to get a copy for themselves, are they, are they both, is Scheme Around the World Volume 1 back in print? Can you pick that book up right now? Yeah, so both of them are available on the website, which, as you said, is www.skiingaroundtheworldbook.com. You can buy one, you can buy both, either way. And, uh, you know, it's been, they just came out about a year ago, and it's been a bit of a problem, obviously, because of Corona for the last nine months. So it's difficult for me to get them, or it has been difficult to, for me to get them placed a lot of uh, locations. My, my original plan here in Europe was put a bunch of books in the back of my car and drive around to, to a lot of the top alpine resorts and, and get them put into, into bookshops and into ski sports shops. But that hasn't been possible so far. Um, and the same is true in the, in the States. I was going to visit the States and try to promote it, but haven't been able to do that. So basically, you know, one has to go to the, you know, get it on the, on the internet. Sure. Well, Jimmy, thanks for taking some time uh, here today and, and talking with me on the Talking Skiing Podcast about all of your travels. Well, we're, for the most part, kind of stuck at home. It's nice to, to hear about all these far off places and all the, the places that you've been. And then you can check them out, of course, in the books. Uh, and there's hundreds and hundreds of places and uh, thousands of pictures. So yeah, a really, really cool uh, compilation that you've put together with the two uh, books, uh, Skiing Around the World, book one, and also uh, volume two. And again, you can find those at skiingaroundtheworldbook.com. Hey, Jimmy, thanks for taking some time and talking with us here today. Lenny, it was a pleasure. Hope we get to meet in person one of these days with some snow under our feet. All right, there you go. Jimmy Pedersen joining us on the Talking Skiing Podcast. Once again, if you wanted to find out more about Jimmy and his books, you can do that at skiingaroundtheworldbook.com. Once again, I'm Lenny Joseph, and thanks again for listening to the Talking Skiing Podcast. If you like what you hear, make sure you leave a review and subscribe. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Talking Skiing. We'll do it again next time right here on the Talking Skiing Podcast.